Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today, we're wishing our Canadian listeners a happy Thanksgiving and reviewing our smoked Gouda dinner muffins. Were they the perfect addition to our dinner tables or good enough to eat any time of day? Then we'll introduce a back-of-the-box bake with perhaps the cutest title to ever appear on Preheated. And speaking of clever names, we'll step into the language lab to take a look at some fun and funny desserts. What the heck's a Knickerbocker Glory or an Apple Dragon? And do they taste as whimsical as they sound? So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, it is officially fall, and we are rolling hot and heavy into pumpkin season. (laughs) Absolutely. We are right mid-month, smack dab in the middle. Of course, last year we did Pumpkin Palooza in October and had so much fun with that particular theme. This year we are going with Simply Savory, and we will be doing a bit of pumpkin, a little bit of a teaser there. Yeah. But one thing that I wanted to bring up that people typically think of when they think of pumpkin and they think of fall, and Mm -hmm. that is pumpkin spice. You bet. I mean, the ubiquitous pumpkin spice latte, of course, but just those nice fall flavors. We talked last episode in episode 145 about some of the awesome things we did during Pumpkin Palooza Month, and one were those pumpkin donut. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Those were so good. And they had lots of those spices, yeah. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is that if you don't bake this way year-round and you buy pumpkin spice once a year in October Mm, and you don't use it all, you might be tempted just to grab that container and use it again this fall. But a spice that sat in your cabinet for over a year, it's probably time to move on and get a new one. (laughs) It's a little musty. The flavors won't be as sharp. We've talked a lot about checking your spices. Yeah. So one thing that you can do is make your own pumpkin spice blend, and I think that is a lot of fun as well. Of course. Now, Stefan, if you make your own pumpkin spice blend, Mm -hmm. the recipe that I use has five spices, and I am (laughs) curious if perhaps you might be able to name them off the cuff. Oh, my gosh. It's like family feud. I know. Okay, (laughs) services. Cinnamon. Got to be cinnamon. Yes. Ding, ding, ding. Okay. Got to be cinnamon. Uh, Nutmeg. Yes. Clove? Yes. Ginger? Yes. Okay, now what's the fifth? (laughs) Oh my goodness. Is it, I'm going to, it's either allspice or... I'm just going to stop you there because you got it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Winner. Winner. (laughs) All my favorites. All my favorites. I thought maybe cardamom, but I know that's, you know, maybe if you had like a sixth entry, maybe you would add cardamom too. Yeah, and this is just the recipe that I use. If you go on the internet and you type in make your own pumpkin pie spice blend, I believe this one is from the Pioneer Woman. That's the one I traditionally make. But I bet you there's all sorts of fun variations. And listeners, we'd love to hear if you make your own spice blends, pumpkin pie or otherwise, and what you put in there. I think that would be really fun to hear what people are doing in their home kitchens. 
You know, Andrea, I will admit to being a bit prejudiced against spice blends for a long time until I found a really, really good one when I moved here to London, and I'm Mm. a complete convert. I mean, I have all of those spices in my cupboard Mm -hmm. anyway, but Mm -hmm. just the ease of having them all put together, I bake a lot with those flavors, you know, in maybe a gingerbread or some kind of pumpkin cake, some kind of apple dessert as well. It's really convenient, and I think making my own sounds like a great fall task. Yeah, and you can take the recipe and scale it up. And so you could make a little jar for yourself and then have some other little jars to give away to people as kind of a here comes fall fun gift. I love that. Here does come fall. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of that, happy Thanksgiving to all of our Canadian listeners. It is October 14th and Canada celebrates Thanksgiving on the second Monday of October. Oh, excellent. Happy Thanksgiving, Canadians. And segueing just so nicely into our review of this week's Bake Along, which was the smoked Gouda dinner muffin from the Canadian magazine Chatelaine. Now, Andrea, this was a solid entry into Simply Savory Month because it was a muffin that included caramelized onion, shredded smoked Gouda, some buttermilk, a bosque pear or pear of your choosing that had been peeled and grated, and then some other of your more regular muffiny ingredients Mm -hmm. like flour, baking powder, salt, and eggs. Yeah. As the show's biggest savory fan, Andrea, why don't you kick off our review and let us know how this went for you? (laughs) Yeah, I was super excited about this recipe. It uses two large onions thinly sliced, which is which is about three cups. Yeah. And since it makes 12 muffins, and I can do math, that's a quarter cup of onions per muffin. Yes, notice they didn't call them onion, smoked onion dinner muffins. (laughs) They didn't, but giving a little foreshadow on my review, I think perhaps they should have. Oh, interesting. Okay. So the directions were really easy. You heat a large frying pan, You add a tablespoon of oil and then your onions and caramelize those 12 to 15 minutes. I love caramelizing onions. I love the smell in my house. My family loves the smell. Mm -hmm. So everything started off on a good note. I have a quibble with the second instruction, which is let cool and then coarsely chop. And so I reverse that. I'm not going to coarsely chopped caramelized onions that are all gooey and slidey and slippery. So I did my chopping first and then caramelized. How about you? Yeah, I wondered about that, too. I wondered why it mattered. Mm -hmm. But I have had better success caramelizing onions when they've been long and stringy. Mm -hmm. So I just went with that here as well. And I did then cool them and chop them, which was kind of irritating. So if I did it again, I would chop them first, too. I don't see why that was secondary instead of the, the primary form of prep. Yeah, maybe if you dice them up, they don't caramelize quite the same way as if they're thinly sliced. And then you don't want a long, thin slice in a muffin. I do agree with that. I don't like it when I bite into a muffin and then I get the, you know, onion string coming out. Yeah, I mean, I think however you're going to cook them up, you want them in small pieces when they go into the muffin batter. Yeah, agree with that. Yeah. So then you line your muffin pan with paper liners. I use my regular 12 cup muffin pan no jumbo no mini just went with the standard and you stir together your flour with your baking powder your pear 
three quarters cup of the shredded cheese and the salt. Now, I had mentioned on last week's show that I had never grated a pear before. <laughs> so I used this beautiful red pear. It's called a star crimson, I believe. It's uh, grown in this area. So that was kind of fun. And I did peel it and I did grate it. And I have to tell you, I had so much juice. I wasn't sure what to do. So I did leave the juice in. I didn't drain it because it didn't say to drain it. Yeah, and so I use an organic pear called a conference pear. It's very, very prevalent here. Mm -hmm. And I also grated that. And I also had a bit of juice. I mm -hmm. just left it on the board. So oh, okay. two different methods there. I will say that's some dangerous, slippery work. We've talked about in the past. Um, those pears are slippery little devils. And they it was are. sliding all over my grater. And I thought, I'm going to get some chunks of myself into this pear in a minute. <laughs> yeah, as I did it, I realized there was a reason why I had never grated a yeah. pear before. I grated mine straight into a bowl, and so that's why I knew there was a lot of juice, and Got it. I okay. chose not to discard it. I'm thinking that might have had a result in the overall texture of the muffin. So if I did these again, I might do it differently. As, you, as far as holding back that extra liquid? I think so, and of course okay. it's going to depend on the pear. Yeah, but exactly. I, I right. don't think I needed that extra quarter cup of pear juice okay. in the from the texture perspective. From a flavor perspective, I think it was fine. Okay, very good. You whisk your two eggs with the two-thirds a cup of buttermilk, the rest of your oil, and then all of those caramelized onions in a large bowl. And then you stir in that flour mixture. So this was just very un unusual to me to be stirring together all of these things like flour and cheese and pear and buttermilk and onions. Yes. And I thought it was an interesting blend. It wasn't strictly here's the wet into the dry because mm -hmm. you had those onions, which were kind of bridging the gap. And yeah. I, I note here that it was it was kind of clumpy when all yes. of this was together. And so I actually just went in with clean hands and kind of, you know, when you're making a pastry and you need to rub the butter in, mm -hmm. that's the motion that I use to break up the clumps because it was texture-wise, it was kind of different. Yeah, mine was very clumpy as well. I didn't break it up because I just assumed they were cheese clumps and I thought that would be kind of fun. But yeah. now that you're saying that out loud, I'm realizing, oh, those could have been flour clumps, which yeah. would not be good. Mine were like <laughs> chunky clumps, so... <laughs> I, div I divided my batter among my 12 muffin cups. That divided nicely. I sprinkled the tops with the remaining quarter cup of cheese. I baked them until the skewer came out clean about 20 minutes, and mine was indeed 20 minutes at 375 degrees Fahrenheit. Yep. And then it says serve warm or at room temperature. You can probably guess I ate my first one warm. <laughs> I mean, anything with melted cheese coming out of the oven, I feel like is going to be better warm. I'm finding that I'm timing my preheated bakes to be done roughly at my lunchtime these days. And so I also had one hot out of the oven. And it does have that really beautiful – I thought these were very beautiful. And very one pretty. of the reasons is that that melted cheese on top. So mm -hmm. don't skip that. Definitely add that little bit of garnished cheese. Yeah. Yeah, so you referenced something about the onion, so I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. Yeah, and here's where I think I screwed up a little bit. Because the title of the recipe was Smoked Gouda Dinner Muffins, I served these at dinner. Yeah. And due to a sort of lack of planning on my part, I served them alongside a super spicy pork vindaloo <laughs> that I had made. Oh. So I had this, you know, Indian 
flavors, strong, spicy. And then I had this smoked Gouda pear accompaniment. And it just did not pair well. And of course, that's not the fault of the recipe. That's my fault. So everyone who tried it that night, a couple of people were like, oh, these are onions. You know, these are onion muffins. Yeah. And when I mentioned the smoked Gouda, then they were like, oh, yeah, now I taste the cheese. I asked anyone if they could identify what I call the mystery ingredient. That was the pear. And we went through about 10 guesses before someone finally guessed pear. Well, it's really fascinating to hear that because that is exactly what I thought as far as taste went also. Too oniony for my mm-hmm. for my preferences. Yeah. Now, Andrea, I cut this recipe in half. I had one less kid at home the week I was making this because my son was away on a school trip. So I thought, you know what, this lended itself very well to having because everything could be done really easily. There was no, you know, measurement that that couldn't be halved nicely. So I did that, which meant I got seven normal size or standard size muffins. Okay. You know, the other thing, Andrea, as far as texture goes, we had quibbled with Chatelaine last week when we introduced this, that just telling us one Bosque pear is very vague. I would Mm -hmm. have liked more weights, more measures there. Mm -hmm. I I think I probably had, so I used half a pear, I halved the recipe, and that was probably uh, a quarter cup of pear, I think, half a cup. I would have appreciated that on the smoked Gouda as well, because when you grate cheese and then you put it in a cup measure, there's a lot of blank space. And I never know, yeah. you know, am I supposed to pack it down? Am I, it would have been nice to have a weight on that particular one. I know. I think we're just more and more, we are really gravitating toward recipes that include weight with yep. with them. Yeah, it just is so helpful. Anyway, again, as I said at the top of the review, I thought they were really pretty. Mm-hmm. I thought they were nice and cheesy. I thought the pear added just the right hit of sweet. If you just mm-hmm. had the onion, if you just had the cheese, these would have veered kind of off the rails for me. I think the yeah. pear did come back with a, just just that tiny bit of sweetness. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked that. I thought they were a sophisticated little muffin, but no one in my family really went crazy for them. And and again, too oniony for me. So if you're going to bake these, if you haven't yet, you might play around with that onion proportion, or maybe you're a person who just loves that flavor. But yes, three cups of onion in a recipe that makes 12 muffins, you're absolutely right. That is a hefty proportion. And no one in my family and none of my friends went crazy for them that night. But wait. The next morning. (laughs) There's more. And there's more. I had them sitting out on the counter. I put them in like a bag, but I didn't seal the bag because I didn't want them to get, you know, gummy and all that sort of thing. I didn't want to freeze them. So I was like, well, I'm just going to let them sit out overnight. And one of my house guests had them the next morning. And I had my recipe printed out. And I had written in the upper right-hand corner, no good at dinner with pork vindaloo. (laughs) She wrote underneath there, yes, amazing for breakfast. Now, did she have it with a fried egg? Did she have it with other kind of breakfast food? Do you know how she how she had it on the side? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know what she paired it with. And I know she didn't heat it up because I did ask her about that, uh, you know, because I was saying, well, we don't have a microwave. So I hope yeah. you enjoyed that. And she said, no, she ate it just right off the counter. And she thought it was amazing. So Maybe something about it sitting a little bit overnight, too, kind of mellowed that onion flavor because she was the person yeah. the previous night who had thought it was too oniony. 
It could be. That's really that's really true. I mean, in many things, you guys know how I go about my banana bread. I never eat it on the first day to allow the flavors to meld. So maybe that would have really improved these also. I think, too, that the specificity of this recipe, which was something we kind of laughed about when yeah. we introduced this, that it's a dinner muffin. But you've just proved that point as well. Maybe great at dinner, maybe with a nice salad or something mm-hmm. of that ilk or a soup at lunchtime. I think that if you are going to go gaga for these flavors, you could do it 24 hours a day. Well, I'm super excited about this entry into the savory world just because I think it does highlight what you can do with savory. You can take a muffin that you've been making and just by swapping out a few ingredients, you can turn it over to the savory side. And while this particular experiment may not have landed 100% with me and my family, I like the ideas and the concepts behind it. Absolutely. Let's see how this next savory entry is going to turn out. We have something coming up that just has, I believe we've both agreed, the cutest name ever. (laughs) And it's called a Cornish Chunky. (laughs) (laughs) How could we resist? This is a back-of-the-box recipe from your Just Roll Pastry, I believe is the name of the product. Yeah, Just Roll Pastry. Yep. And Stefan... What the heck is a Cornish Chunky? (laughs) This is something that's brand new to me. I love it. And I love that we're doing this in an episode that we're also going to step into the language lab to talk about desserts and bakes with unusual names. So Cornish Chunky, I believe, is just Roll's cute name for a Cornish pasty, which is the meat pie that that region of England is so well known for. Okay. I think we've done a small segment on pies and and different foods like that, hand pies specifically. These were originally intended for miners to take down into the mines. They were portable and historically filled with meat and veg, you know, all you could need for your Mm -hmm. meal right in your hand. And the pastry actually wasn't traditionally eaten. It was just used as the carrying case. However, Just Roll makes a delicious pastry, which we learned when we did the homemade Pop-Tarts Oh yeah, in Made It Myself month. So that's mm-hmm. why we felt confident going back out, trying our luck with the prepared pastry again, and then doing it with some savory twist. So Andrea, have you eaten or made a Cornish pasty before? Definitely not made. Perhaps I've eaten one. I've had a Australian meat pie. There's actually okay. a place in Burien, Washington. I think it's called the Australian Meat Pie Company. Oh, very <laughs> specific. <laughs> yeah, very specific. And so I've definitely had some meat pies and I really enjoyed them. And I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, that I might have had a meat pie one night when I was sitting for your children from a local butcher. You did, yes. Local okay. butcher. The local butcher is called Lydgates. And like many institutions in London, you know, it's been around hundreds of years. <laughs> I love it. That memory looms large for me because it was so delicious. Yes. And you know, Andrea, the other reason that I'm really anxious and excited to tackle this particular recipe is that a few episodes ago, we were talking and you mentioned that you are not a huge fan of leftovers unless you can change them into something else. And I want to propose that this could be a place to change your leftovers into something else. I think you are right. So let's go through the ingredients. And I do have a couple of questions on the ingredients. 
Okay, excellent. So folks, even though this recipe is brought to us by Just Roll Pastry, you of course can use any refrigerated pastry crust you like, or indeed your own. You're just going to want two times 320 grams of pastry. Then you have some onion, some mushrooms, a potato, a carrot, some frozen peas, parsley, brown sauce, and an egg. Andrea, I think you know all of those ingredients with the possible exception of brown sauce. Well, you guessed correctly, although I did want some specificity on the pastry sheets. Now, last time we used the refrigerated pastry sheets from the grocery store, I got the Trader Joe's pie crust. Yeah. And this particular thing is called a short crust pastry sheet. So short crust, to me, is almost more like a tart crust. Should I get a puff pastry sheet or should I get a pie crust? When I buy refrigerated dough that I need for a pie crust, I buy short crust. So I think you should just get a pie crust. Okay, because I had I don't believe I've ever seen anything named short crust in my grocery store. As far as I can tell, that is an English baking term, but the most closely aligned would just be your pie crust. Yes. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Not to say, I mean, if you want to experiment and go with your puff pastry or a rough puff or something like that, I think that would be awesome. But I think what this recipe is intending is a traditional pie crust. Yeah. Oh, the rough puff. I forgot the about rough that. rough puff. It's like the easy puff. Um, okay. And then as you guessed, I did have questions about the mysterious and, in my opinion, poorly named spicy brown sauce. <laughs> uh, do tell what indeed is this spicy brown sauce. Well, HP is the biggest and best known purveyor of brown sauce, which is just a British institution. It tastes Mm. to me like A1. Do you know A1 steak sauce? Sure, sure. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I think I have seen it in the States, even before I moved here to London, in the international food section. HP is very prominent on the bottle. It has that consistency of an A1, kind of the look and the texture of it as well. But if you could find HP, go for it. Now, the spicy variation is interesting because even though I'm living here now, I couldn't find a bottle that specifically said spicy. So maybe they just didn't want to call out another name brand here. Oh, and I see all brown mean. sauce is mm-hmm. spicy. Yes, I'm not sure about that. But I just use the standard HP sauce. But you could, if you didn't have either of those, you could also maybe just do a ketchup or a barbecue sauce, something like that. Mm-hmm. The other thing that threw me off a little bit on this recipe is my only experience with meat pies is that they contain meat. <laughs> Shocker. And you called it a pasty. Do pasties typically contain just vegetables or do they often contain meat? I think that's the wonderful thing about them, and I think that's why I'm hoping to use this recipe as more of a template. You can Mm -hmm. stick whatever you want. You could stick chicken. You could stick lamb. You could have totally veggie. You could do root vegetables. So again, what I think I might do is use up some leftover roast veg. They say right at the top of this recipe, you know, this is a great way for using up leftover vegetables from a Sunday roast. You might also have some meat if you had a roast or if you had a stew, something like that. Um, If not, then I think you can follow the directions as far as cooking the veg and then putting it in. But no, you want to put some steak in there? Totally go for it. I'm also excited because my parsley this summer went insane in my garden. So I know it's only one tablespoon of parsley, but it's always very much fun for me that I can just go outside and chop some off my plant. You know, my favorite pesto actually contains parsley, not basil. I'll send you that recipe. Mm, yes, please. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've, I've done a similar thing with the cilantro pesto. So Love it. Mm-hmm. Okay, side note, during Savory Month. 
We're now we're talking green sauce. Yeah. Yeah. Well, remember, everyone, we will have a link to these recipes in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 146 on our website, preheatedpodcast.com. And we'll also put a link in our Facebook listeners group. Andrea, we teased about visiting the Language Lab for a segment we're calling Say What? Last summer, <laughs> when you stumbled upon the Posset, just one of the many desserts whose names don't make it immediately obvious to modern-day bakers or eaters what they might actually be. I remember. And as you may remember, listeners, a passette was originally created as a cream-based drink that was curdled with ale and taken as a remedy for a head cold or a flu. Mm. (laughs) In the 16th century, though, it evolved into a chilled dessert similar to a custard. No word yet on if you can still count on it to cure your sniffles. <laughs> I dare you. <laughs> well, the Posset is just the tip of the iceberg as far as whimsical dessert naming goes. We talked about a fool in September, and that's a mix of whipped cream and fruit. And mm. Andrea, you're probably familiar with a snickerdoodle cookie. And I know you remember what a flummery is from episode 12. But have you heard of a dragon, a mess, a plots, a glory, a Kranachan, a tablet, a floating island, or a nonsense? I mean, that whole list just sounds like nonsense. <laughs> a dragon? <laughs> An apple dragon, to be specific, and seasonal. Turns out this is a cousin to the Welsh cakes I talked about back in episode 135. It's mm. a griddled scone that in this case adds grated apple to the batter for moistness and flavor. And there's another Welsh cake variation with an equally poetic name, the Newport Lovely. That's a local specialty of Newport in southeast Wales that's historically made by men for their sweetheart for an engagement or wedding present. I love the idea of whipping up a scone called a lovely for your sweetheart. (laughs) Speaking of sweet, the Emperor's Mess, or Emperor's Nonsense, Kaiserschmarren, from Austria, is a light caramelized pancake that's broken into pieces when frying and sprinkled with icing sugar, then served with fruit compote, most traditionally a plum compote. It's beloved in Austria, Bavaria, Croatia, Hungary, and Slovenia, and I loved learning that, though it's usually served as dessert, you will often see Kaiserschmarren on lunch menus. My kind of dessert. Now, since we're speaking German, let's talk about the plots. It falls in that category of unfortunate titles, like a slump or a grunt. (laughs) Both cobbler-like desserts that are delicious, but you'd never know it from their name. So please tell me the plots also taste better than it sounds. Though I've never had one, the description is definitely more appetizing than the name. A Platz is a Mennonite coffee cake that's a bit like the better-known Kuchen, and kind of a cross between a pie and a cake. It's a thin cake layer topped with fruit, typically rhubarb, berries or apples, and a crumb topping. That does sound good, and certainly less messy than the Kaiserschmarren. But speaking of messes, we would be remiss if we didn't mention a mess that originated near you in England, the Eaton mess. (laughs) That's right. The Eaton mess may be the most famous of the messes, a mix of broken meringue, strawberries, and double cream. First recorded in 1893, it's commonly thought to have been created at Eaton College, where it's been served at the annual cricket match against rival school Harrow ever since. Nowadays, you'll find all kinds of variations, the most popular being the Lansing mess, which uses bananas and is served at Lansing College in West Sussex. 
Mm, I guess mess is a kinder word than lazy or easy, since that's what these seem to be. (laughs) It's definitely one for the home baker, or more aptly, the home assembler. It hurts my heart and my pocketbook to order an eaten mess in a restaurant, since I know what a cinch they are to make. Now, a similar dessert on your list, at least in terms of ingredients, is the Knickerbocker Glory. What the heck is this? (laughs) Don't you love that name? The Knickerbocker Glory is an ice cream sundae from 1920s Great Britain that historically includes ice cream, fruit, syrup, nuts, sometimes meringue, and yes, a cherry on top. The origins of this name are a little vague, though. Knickerbocker was a nickname for Dutch immigrants in New York, previously New Amsterdam, in the 17th and 18th centuries. That doesn't have a lot to do with ice cream, so it's unclear why the dessert adopted this name as opposed to sundae used in the States. Hmm. And an interesting side note about the creation of the sundae. Ice cream sundaes are thought to be a variation on ice cream soda from the time when soda water was outlawed on Sundays because it was too fancy for the Sabbath. Food fight warning. At least two U.S. cities claim to have invented the ice cream sundae, but Two Rivers, Wisconsin, and Ithaca, New York, both lay the biggest claims to this now iconic treat. Speaking of desserts that are a bit of a mess of things, there's another in this category from Scotland, the Cranachan. Oh yes, and I've actually had this one. It's a layered dessert, much like a mess, but includes oats, raspberries, cream, and whiskey. So you could probably eat it for breakfast. Oh, sure. Is overnight Cranachan a thing, like overnight oats? (laughs) Another original recipe for the preheated cookbook. (laughs) Andrea, speaking of Scotland, though, another unusually named dessert from that country is the tablet. I have no idea what that might be. The name offers no clues, does it? Turns out, tablet is a buttery, medium-hard, crystallized confection, a little like fudge, though much more grainy, that can be flavored with vanilla and or whiskey, and sometimes includes nuts. And, interesting globetrotting gourmet side note, tablet is nearly identical to the Quebecois treat sucre a la creme, South American tableta de leche, the Borsblatt from the Netherlands, and Sri Lankan milk toffee. Well, this is fascinating. We find that with so many desserts that it's definitely a small world when it comes to sweets. Okay, we're nearing the end of the list, but we haven't yet talked about one of the most poetic, the floating island. It just sounds so romantic, doesn't it? It's a French dessert of creme anglaise custard topped with a poached meringue developed in the early 1900s. Like many dessert trends, they were very, very popular, especially after Julia Child introduced them to her American audience mid-century. But then they fell out of favor. But now, according to BBC Good Food, floating islands are staging a roaring comeback. I'll go ahead and call it a 2020 food trend to watch out for. You heard it on Preheated First. (laughs) Whatever their name or their trendiness, these desserts are, most importantly, downright delicious. The world of unusually named desserts is vast and varied, and we've only had time to chat about a few. So listeners, let us know your favorites or ones we missed. Send us an email at hosts at preheatedpodcast.com or let us know in our Facebook listeners group. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the icing onto this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and next week we'll see if Cornish Chunkies lived up to their adorable title. And... We'll introduce a cheddar and hazelnut shortbread that could be an elegant and delicious addition to your tea table or hors d'oeuvres tray. We'll also talk about the kind of bakes needed and appreciated by folks going through a tough time health-wise. 
Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe. And consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our podcast. Take a listen to one of our latest reviews from Grace Liz 3 They say, 64 episodes into my crazy binge of this show, I realized I was so enthralled with the podcast that I forgot to review. This is my new favorite podcast, and I love podcasts almost as much as I love baking. I learn and laugh so much in every single episode, and sometimes I feel like it's me, Stefan, and Andrea all chatting together about our baking adventures. Keep up the awesome work. Oh, I love it. I get such a thrill whenever I see a new review pop up. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to do that. I do too. And I love the people who get to binge. I mean, I love, of course, all of our longtime listeners who have been with us since the beginning, but it's fun to see someone discover us. And then, as she said, go on her crazy binge. It's really (laughs) exciting. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stephen Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. I think, too, that I've completely lost my train of thought.